0: Hello, and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week we're going whaling. Our guest is Sam J. Miller, genre-defying, cetitian enthusiast and all-round good guy. His new novel, The Blade Between, was published yesterday, December 1st, by Echo Books. It's set in Sam's very own boyhood hometown of Hudson, New York, and, as the book will tell you, It's a whale of a town, and The Blade Between is a whale of a good time. It is one of the most issue-driven horror stories we've talked about so far on the show. It takes place in a community struggling with the pros and cons of gentrification. The new money flowing in brings all kinds of hate and resentment to the surface. Take Stephen King's Needful Things, add some whale ghosts, turn the weirdness dial to 11, and you're in the vicinity of The Blade Between. Sam's a wonderful guest. He's open and willing to get into the meat of how his life appears on the page. He's also got a lot of things to say about queer identity in horror, about how no one ever thinks they are the villain in the story, and about the worry of how people in his hometown may feel when they see it represented in the book. Along the way, we also take some time to give capitalism a, a good kicking, like All outspoken liberal white boys like to do on occasion. So, get your raincoat and your harpoon. You'll need them. We're off to a bloodstained town on the banks of the Hudson. With any luck, we'll catch a big one. Let's talk scared. Hi Sam, and welcome to Talking Scared. Thanks for giving us your time. Thanks for having me. No, of course, of course it's uh glad to have you.
1: Where are you speaking to
0: us from today?
1: So I'm actually calling from Hudson New York um where I grew up i It's my mother's seventieth birthday yesterday, so my husband and I traveled up to surprise her for her birthday yesterday. and we're going to spend a couple of days up here.
0: so you're actually at Ground Zero for the novel as well exactly exactly excellent. that gives a nice kind of frizz on to the uh, to proceedings. So, yeah, speaking of the novel, you've got a brand new book out, which is called The Blade Between. Um, It was published um, yesterday, December 1st, by Echo Books. It's easily one of the strangest horror novels I've read all year. What can you tell us about it?
1: Well, thank you for that compliment. I I strive to strangeness. Um, (laughs) uh, It's a horror novel about a, um, a... gay photographer who finds himself back in his hometown. Um, He's been struggling with addiction issues. And so he often ends up in strange places, but never intended to travel back to his hometown um, and gets caught up in uh, a local resistance movement to the gentrification and displacement that's happening um, and helps to uh, try to save people uh, from losing their homes and businesses, but is being manipulated by supernatural forces um that maybe don't want um non-violent resolutions to those problems
0: so that is the that's kind of the the plumb line of the story i would say (laughs) there's a lot more to it than that so it's a crazy book and i mean crazy in the kind of the most complimentary way possible at its core it's a relatively focused story about a community in crisis, but you build all these layers of weirdness into it. So we've got ghost whales, we've got ancient demons from Pacific Islands, we've got this strange afterlife that overlaps with reality. Can you give us some insight into how this kind of melting pot
1: of a novel came to be? Yeah, I mean, I, the novel was born out of a pretty simple moment of, um, of anger you know, there's a there's a scene in the book where um, one of the characters who is a, a new arrival to Hudson um, s- makes eye contact with a local who's parked at a red light. And there's like just this flash of 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 hatred that, that she perceives. And and I actually was the person behind the wheel um, who who just had this intense moment of of anger because, you know, this town where I grew up, which, you know, I ran away from as soon as I could. Um, you know, as a, as a, as a gay person in the nineties, uh, in a crummy small town, it was not possible to live a life that I wanted to. Um, and so, you know, Hudson has been transforming a lot and there's been a lot of money coming in and a lot of, you know, transformation. And, and, um, and so a lot of my feelings of, about that and the sort of complicated emotions that I feel were the seed of this, of this book. And so. Um, you know, I, I love genre fiction and I and and horror especially because how it allows us to explore, you know, as artists the way we feel the world, if not necessarily the way we see the world. And it's easy to feel that the world is malevolent and full of horrible presences, and and also magic and wonderful presences. But just that that there's this um, numinous edge to reality, and that there are forces at work influencing us that are are um, you know, far more powerful than us, you know, whether, whether that's just the influence of history, the legacy of genetics, the, the, you know, the deeds and misdeeds of our past lives and ancestors, whatever it is, I I feel like, um, I certainly feel like we are, we are all of us, um, sort of caught in a, uh, web of accountability, um, and, and, being bound to others, that, that is what I try to sort of communicate with the, the sort of complex supernatural landscape um, that overlays the complex economic landscape of, of the Hudson of my book.
0: So, I mean, yeah, I can see that. The, the metaphysics are quite ornate, you know, that, that you come up with. Um, and I need to read the book again because it, it's one of those books that I still don't feel like I, I have a full grasp of, of this supernatural landscape and that's not because of anything lacking in the in the prose. It's more because I feel like there's, there's, it needs to be mined out. You know, it, it's not it's not a simple haunted house tale that you're telling here. It's, there's all different kinds of, of haunting. Um, but you say you you know you grew up in Hudson um, to kind of set the parameters for the blend of, of fact and fiction. How close is the fictional Hudson to the, the real
1: place? Um- you know, it's it's tough to say. This, I think, Hughes very closely to my experience of Hudson. Um, and, you know, my father did have a butcher shop at 310 Warren Street on 3rd and Warren, um, that it did become an antique store. Um, and so there are certainly many, many biographical details that overlap between Ronan and I. And, you know, many of the businesses that I mentioned that have been put out of business are real um so there's definitely like facts that are are um uh real the 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 library um that was once that was that has formerly been a poorhouse a insane asylum an orphanage um uh and is now and and now is nothing um you know that's real i think there's a lot of of the facts um uh, but certainly um what animates the story is my feelings about it which of course are my own and i certainly don't want to presume to tell the story of a town that i left 23 years ago um so there's certainly um you know a, a, an extent to which this is this is the landscape of the hudson of my of my feelings um uh so i th- i think there yes there's a lot of overlap i um it is you know a a fascinating and beautiful town it's it's you know Every eight months or so, the New York Times runs an article declaring Hudson to be the the next big thing or the new frontier um, for you know New York City residents looking to escape and and find cult to find the sort of culture and arts spaces and affordable by New York City standards rents that are no longer that don't exist anymore in New York City. So um, you know it's there, there's a lot of reality. Um, I can't speak to whether or not the whale ghosts are real, um, (laughs) but it was, you know, my, my town, even though it's 114 miles up the Hudson river, um, it was a whaling town. It did. That was sort of the, 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 the engine of its rise to, to power it, it it lost by one vote when they were figuring out the capital of New York state. Um, so, you know, it, it, at one time occupied a place of relative power and grandeur and that long since passed. Um, so, you know, it's it's a beautiful place that I love, even if I also hate it in a lot of ways.
0: There's an implication here. normally I, I don't really ask necessarily authors about the biographical elements of the books because one, I think it's prying and two, I often think it's a bit of a specious question. But I think in this in this book, it really feels like there's an investment of, of yourself in in the novel, and in particular in the character of Ronan, is it fair to say that Ronan's childhood mirrors your childhood?
1: Uh, definitely, in a lot of ways, I think Ronan's life story echoes mine. There's there's a lot of you know biographical details that are that are true, um, uh, but I think that more importantly, Ronan's story and childhood and, and adolescence in Hudson is sort of echoes. And, and is emblematic of that, of lots of LGBTQ folks um, who grow up in small towns where they don't have a lot of gay, you know, uh, you know, where it's not safe for them to be out, where they don't have other out people modeling that you can be happy and live a wonderful life, um, where you have, you know, homophobic violence. Um, so I think that I veered away from making Ronan um me and tried to make him you know i think you know in a lot of ways even though Ronan seems a lot like me um he is me if i made a lot more bad decisions you know he's he, he's sort of the hot <laughs> mess version of me who never got settled and and found a a place of of peace um and who still has this sort of like you know blade between his ribs or or wound that has not healed that he is unwittingly that he's tried sort of through addiction and, 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 and all kinds of um, self-medication behaviours to, to fix and hasn't been successful and sort of finds himself in this supernatural story where he's realising that he, this is the problem that he has to confront if he wants to, you know, become whole. One of the reasons this book spoke to me so profoundly is
0: because I had a adolescence that was very similar in the kind of disjunction from where I grew up to the kind of person I, I thought of myself as. So I, I grew up in a town in in the kind of like the, the hinterland of, of the North of England outside Manchester that is every bit as, you know, inward looking um, or certainly was when I was young, inward looking, you know, prejudice was rife, very small minded. Um, and it's that sense of that comes all the way, all through the book of that sense of simultaneous, Love and hate for the place you grew up. It's much better now, but I now live in a town that's very nearby to where I grew up. That is undergoing the same struggle of uh, gentrification, where you've got these cool, swanky coffee bars um, that just simply do not cater for the the, the local populace who've lived here for, for for decades. And it's that same that same tussle with with what is the right thing to do, you know. So th- there's lots of, about this book that really, really spoke to me having written a book that is that is so like analogous with your hometown are you all worried about the reaction of people in hudson to this novel deeply deeply
1: worried um, <laughs> you know i, I think that it's, it's my MO as a writer, and, and w- whether this is a blessing or, or a curse remains to be seen, um, that I don't have a problem writing about the topics that are painful and difficult for me. So, for example, my debut novel, The Art of Starving, was about my experience um, as an, as a teenager having an eating disorder, um, and I didn't have a problem writing it. It was only once I sold it and realized, oh, crap, people are going to read this, Um that I started to panic. And so, yes, I didn't have a problem writing the book, um, The Blade Between. I, I could dive headfirst into all of my complicated feelings. And it's only now, Neil, <laughs> that I start to think, oh, Lord, this might inspire some feelings. I kind of feel like the feelings that I'm worried about aren't the local feelings in the sense of um, I th- my attempt was to honor the, the sort of, um, local feelings and the, you know, there, as often happens with transformation and and gentrification, um, you know, many times people who, you know, not everyone benefits from it. There are some businesses that will benefit and, and many that will not, and some people that will benefit and many that will not. So, um, you know, I think I wanted to give a space for and voice to people who feel frustrated, um, who feel angry, whatever, Um, I think if anyone's going to be pissed, uh, it's more likely to be, you know, New York City people who are moving to Hudson, the sort of new arrivals, the sort of, you know, one thing that I have had to deal with for the past 20 years as living in New York is when I tell people I'm from Hudson, they're like shocked because they didn't know people came from Hudson. They only know people go to Hudson. Um, So, you know, I think that 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 experience of like, you know, Lots of people go there for a day trip. You know, there's a it's 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 a two hour um, quick train ride from New York City. So people go there for the weekend. They have friends who are up there. Many people know it as a vacation place, and um, a lot of anger that Ronan feels and that other characters feel is directed at people like that. So I think it's more likely that those people will be upset. Um, But you know, you can never tell who's going to be upset or why, um, and and how to handle it. So I you know. Um, I'm. It, it's. I, I made peace a long time ago with the fact that as a writer, I want to write about things that are real and that are upsetting to me, and that are things that I wish were different, um, as well as things that give me hope and excitement, um, and 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 instances where I think there's there's a possibility of positive change. So you know that that there would always be people who would be pissed off about it. I mean, I've been getting. Um, I've been getting hate mail since I was writing for zines Nobody Reads, you know, 30 years ago, um, not 30 years ago, but 25 years ago. Um, and, and, and since I was writing for really small websites that would go out of business um, really quickly. So, um, you know, I, I don't want to say I'm cool with it because it's always upsetting when someone has a negative response and, um, you know, yells at you. Um, even if it's on the internet, but um, you know I, I, I know when I talk about things like gentrification that there's going to be strong feelings involved and and I think that it's an important conversation to have that we're not good at having and so um, this is my attempt to to have it.
0: And you have it well. And, and if, if you write a, a horror novel that doesn't upset somebody, then that's probably a failure. You know what I mean? You, you kind of, it's got to upset somebody
1: surely. So <laughs> the, the point is to be, is to be upsetting or, or to really, to scare people and to dig into the things that make them uncomfortable. And, and, you know, you had, I know you had, um, Paul Tremblay on, who's one of my favorite horror writers and, um, you know, in i i feel like in the cabin at the end of the world for example it's um you know for me it was the relationship between the two men um that i was scared i i didn't give a hoot about the end of the world i wanted this relationship to succeed you know and um you know in you know a lot of like nathan balinger is another one of my favorite contemporary horror writers and you know usually he has monsters but he also has working class folks struggling to Make their way in a in a difficult world, and they. I tend to be more scared of their economic well being or their ability to live decent lives than I am about like whatever monster um, is menacing them. With this book, the violence and and the horror of which there is plenty,
0: you know, for people who want that, there is lots of it. Um, but it it really is just a delivery mechanism for the kind of moral um, anxiety at the heart of all this, because. It's, it's a book that really forces you as a, you know, white, middle class, liberal person to, to look at the harm you're doing just by being complicit in a system. But actually being a bad person, you can still be doing harm. Um, and it's quite a disquieting topic to confront in a horror novel. Sure. Yeah. Agreed. You, you've mentioned whaling already. Um, and obviously, whaling is is everywhere in this book. And the first chapter of this is phenomenal. I, I defy anyone to show me a better first chapter of a book this year. Now, and I think I said as much on Twitter. Now, um, weirdly, that that first chapter is kind of a potted history of the town, and it's told kind of via the butchering of a whale carcass. It, it grabbed me by the throat. Um, but it doesn't necessarily influence the plot at all. So I wonder what was your thinking behind leading off with that chapter?
1: Well, I first must say that it does my heart profound good to hear you say that it's a solid first chapter. And um, I'm delighted to say that someone else had said something to the effect of this is one of the best first chapters they had read in a while, because it was originally not the first chapter. It was originally in the middle of the book. um, And I went back and forth with my editor a lot on where it belonged. And um, I feel like when I got the galley and saw that it was the first chapter, I was like, wait. I don't remember putting that first. Hmm. Um, so I think that the, the, the I, I, I agree that it now that, that that is the place for it. I, I, I love it and, and, and I'm glad that it's there. Um, and um, I think that for me, it's really about setting a tone of, you know, one of the things I, I want to talk about generally in my fiction and, and certainly in this book is the sort of violence that built the world we live in. Um, that we often are not educated about. I mean, I, you know, um, as someone who grew up in the United States in a public school in um, in upstate New York, I um, wasn't adequately educated in the extent to which slave labor and stolen land were the engines of america's rise to global prominence or that the extent to which like interference in democratic elections around the world and 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 orchestration of coups um uh were the mechanisms by which that you know prominence was maintained um so i think that starting off from a place of like the soil that you walk on the street that you walk down um is figuratively or literally um, soaked in blood um, and that, and that the, you know, the world you live in is, um, was shaped by suffering and exploitation and that you yourself, even if you don't want to admit it, even if you yourself did nothing wrong, have to grapple with the fact that you enjoy privileges and and the life that you lead is is is, it, is impossible could never have happened without you know a genocide or a um an imperialism um or some some kind of you know sort of really horrific uh action and 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 not even that those are you know sealed and done and in the past but that in many cases those are things that are still happening um even if you know even if we don't have you know horrific colonies um that we are exploiting for resources you know the the people who are creating our food and and the products that we buy um often live lives that are significantly um less you know comfortable than we you know sort of like western western horror readers um, so yeah, that that's sort of like where I wanted to start from, um, and you know, also that I'm obsessed with whales, and you know, the idea that we used to hunt and and kill and exploit these beautiful, intelligent creatures that we used to think of them as 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 a a way to light our homes, um, uh, and that we only stopped because petroleum was Cheaper, um, not because we cared about the animals, um, is one of those sort of like fundamental contradictions that I sort of keep exploiting and, and exploring in my in my fiction.
0: There is something I think that's very specifically American Gothic about what you just described. Um, so obviously, you know, the, the the soil of the world is is strewn with with trauma and, and the memory of violence, but there's something about American horror in which I think it's because it's such a relatively young country and it's the ability to point to specific atrocities like, you know, the Native American genocide or slavery or, you know, the Salem Witch Trials, specific atrocities to say that is what stained the land crimson. Whereas in in Britain, you know, we've had so many centuries of, of just, arseholes doing awful things (laughs) but we we can't really pick one anymore it's just like yeah there was a battle everywhere in america you have the the kind of dark privilege of being able to say this one thing happened here and it was awful sure
1: (laughs) yes what luck for us
0: i've seen you describe your book as house of cards by way of stephen king (laughs) and I've I have already written weirdly before I read that. I've written my own review um uh, I described it as needful things filtered through the nihilism of Chuck Palahniuk. Fascinating. I hope, I hope you see that as a compliment. Um I do. How much was the spectre of kind of King and needful things and the Gaunt gone looking over your shoulder in this one?
1: A lot. I'm not going to lie. I mean, I do love Stephen King and I and I um you know, do find myself revisiting him on a regular basis. Um, and so I, I, yes, I, I, his imprint is deep in me as it is in a lot of horror writers, I think. Um, and I definitely did reread Needful Things as I was beginning work on this book, because I read it when I was probably 13 or 14. Um, and so I, it's one of those things that I've internalized things, you know, sometimes you, you forget that you already, read something and so it seems like a new idea to you but it's something you read a long time ago um so i had to revisit needful things to be like i know there's going to be a lot of overlap in these plots and that the sort of like you know bare bones of a supernatural force instigating like providing the spark that you know leads to an explosion of all these different people um you know, I had to revisit it to be like, let me, let me not steal anything too blatantly. And what do I need to change so that it's not too much of a rip off, but also like what, like, I mean, I, one of the things that I love about Stephen King is that his, his plot mechanics are so precise and perfect and, and the way that the plot escalates and, and the ways that that characters make decisions um, is so spot on. So like, what are the things that he's doing right? And what are, what are the things that I need to know about how to do that story. Um, so yes, I'm, I cop very freely to, to the, 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 the influence of needful things on this book and, and hope that the theft, that any theft I engage in was, was at least thoughtful theft. Um, I think that I write a lot about Hudson, uh, even though I ran screaming from it as soon as I was of age, Um, and so one of the things that I love about Stephen King is that he gets how small towns work and how, how people interact and how people like have feelings. Um, and so, yeah, that, that is, that is the part of the long shadow of King is that I, um, you know, he showed me and and lots of writers that the, the sort of like, you know, banal 1950s idea of, of small town American life is, you know, just a, a glossy coat of paint on a you know horrific atrocities that are either waiting to happen or already happened.
0: Well, yeah, exactly that. I mean, my, my favorite book of all time is is it by Stephen King. I'm a bit obsessive about it, and that's my favorite horror novel. There we go, there we go. We are simpatico. <laughs> yeah, I I that book means things to me that other books don't. I'm getting a tattoo of it on my arm. It's yeah, you know, it's getting crazy. Um, but I I was. The, the first chapter that I of yours that I keep, you know, praising, it reminded me of those little interstitial parts that, that King puts in about the history of Derry, which yeah. really do flesh out, you know, it, it makes this town feel like a living, breathing town. Uh, and that's something you you definitely do as well in The Blade Between, that this town feels like an organic entity in which in which people's lives are, you know, continuing when you're not reading about them. When I was talking about Needful Things, I wasn't talking about necessarily derivations of the plot it's more of that that sense of a community in crisis i think that you capture really well thank you now we've kind of talked already and riffed on the biographical elements of the novel and, and that's as i say it's a, i find it a fairly specious question what i am interested in this though is how personal the book is for you in an emotional sense because it's an inc- incredibly heightened emotional novel. Like, the, the, literally, it's a, it's a kind of vocabulary level. The emotions are, are ripe and rich and heightened. Is that a, a conceit you've gone for, or is that something that actually comes from within you?
1: I think that as a writer... A- well, as a reader, the the stories that mean the most to me and the stories that I come back to and that, and that sort of like haunt me the most are the ones where I can really feel the emotions of the characters. And so I will forgive a lot of literary crimes if I can feel what the character, who the characters are and what their burning twisted hearts are and, and what they want. So um, that is something that I I think is, you know... I, that I, that I try to capture in my own fiction is that like, I don't know if I can scare you. I don't know if I can uh, give you hope. I don't know if I can inspire or trouble you, Um, but I hope that I can make you feel things like that's the thing that I, I try for the most across my fiction. Um, I, I, you know, like I, I write a lot of science fiction um, and you know, my favorite science fiction writer who 's working today is, is Ted Chang, and he does things that I will never be able to do you know he is he is he has wisdom and and intelligence and can sort of like explore science and sort of complicated thought provoking questions in a way that i can I will never be able to do but so he as much as I love him and as much as he's a, a hero and a role model of mine i know i'm that's not who i 'm trying to be you know i Respond to the the sort of raw beating heart, um, which not that he doesn't do emotion really well, but I won't be the writer who's going to be scientifically accurate. Um, who's gonna who's gonna nail hard sci-fi? Um, I might like make you feel the trauma that made a uh, physicist want to create a wormhole, but I won't be the one to convince you of the mechanics of the wormhole. So. Uh, I'm glad that the emotions come through. I, I think that it's that that's the thing that I, um, I I tend to to feel better about in in my writing.
0: The word hate appears everywhere in this book, yet it's not a hateful book. It, and you know, hate is a driving force, but at times it's almost indistinguishable from from love. Can we discuss
1: that? I'd love to discuss that. I mean, I think that. Um... I don't know if anyone in your listening audience has looked at America <laughs> in the last four years um, and in the last throughout its history, right? Um, but, uh, you know, this is something that I think is speaks very much to the heart of the American predicament. It has always been, um, but we're seeing a particularly acute flare-up of, of this chronic health condition um, in that, you know racism, bigotry, resentment, hatred, class rage, um, I, I don't think these are uniquely American problems. I actually think they are universal problems, but um, you know, I think that hate has become the dominant engine of our politics in America. Um, not you know, racism has always been a dominant. Engine of our politics in America. Um, But now we're just seeing such an incredible explosion of it. And I I think, you know, in a lot of ways, there's a lot of causes to it that I don't have the sort of expertise or research or knowledge to try to explicate of like, you know, the the impact of social media um, and the sort of like ways that um, safe spaces have been created for racists to find one another and inflame and enrage and and activate one another that that you know it's now possible for people to like to fully immerse themselves in a cocoon of hateful fiction and and sort of all sorts of conspiracy theory reality that used to be the province of a very small number of people is now the reality that a lot of people live um and so i think this is my attempt to understand that um where that comes from and to treat that with the the sort of um, respect that it deserves, not that hate deserves to be respected, but that we need the, you know, the, 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 the hateful behavior and the destructive behavior, whether that's voting for a fascist or, you know, actively engaged in, in hate speech online or, or walking into a synagogue with a machine gun and, and killing people because they're Jewish um, you know, not that those behaviors deserve respect, but that we have to honor the reality of, of the trauma that we are living. There's a, a, a sort of like quote that is sort of my mission statement as a writer that, that sort of undergirds my approach to reality and to character um, is from Patricia Highsmith's The Talented Mr. Ripley, where he says, no one thinks they're a bad person. Whatever you do, how horrible, it all makes sense in your head. Um and so people who I believe are behaving horrifically um they are not they do not know that they are villains they do not know that they are monsters um even if they're shooting people in a crowd um they in whatever warped horrific reality they live in, this is a behavior that that needs to happen and 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 maybe it does come from a a place of love or a place of like I believe that um you know children are in peril, that people are are you know exploiting children, or I believe that um, my people are threatened with genocide. Um, even if those are completely absurd beliefs, they're real beliefs that motivate real atrocity. So um, you know wanting to understand that, wanting to 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 broker a piece, even if it's just a fictional piece um, between fictional characters. Um, between people who hate each other um, I, I want to believe that that's possible I want to believe that um, we can find a way forward um, when both sides of the equation hate each other and fear each other um, so so yeah that's that's where that comes from it comes from 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 living in America and sort of seeing everyone around you lose your lose their minds um, and feeling really helpless to do anything about it
0: yeah, I've got quite a few things to say to that. I'm going to try and marshal all of these questions <laughs> into one cohesive line of inquiry. Um, first of all, get where you're coming from entirely. We are we are experiencing a kind of slightly more moderate version of the same thing in Britain. Um, and I think it's only more moderate because it's a smaller country. We're all a bit closer together. And if we're quite that angry, then there would be mm. moving the streets. But we are, you know, yeah, th- th- those same... Those same sort of schisms are definitely coming to the fore over here as well. Um, but so a few things, but it, it all hinges on that kind of moral complexity, as you say, Patricia Highsmith. You know, no, no one thinks they're the bad guy. Um, Hudson seems to be a kind of almost perfect microcosm of the US in this novel. It may be in real life as well. I don't know, but in the novel. It seems a standing almost for the nation that's undergoing the trauma that you're talking about. So it's a sense of, you know, invasion and the and kind of cultural genocide, you know, for want of a better word. But it's being, the, the, the genocide is being perpetrated or is being, is seen to be perpetrated, not by poor immigrants, you know, which is the standard narrative. But instead it's being perpetrated by a kind of urban liberal elites, who are descending on this kind of Rust Belt provincial city. Now, no one in that dynamic is necessarily evil or even wrong at the start of that situation. It's just where it goes from there. But where are allegiances supposed to lie in this story? Because everyone is kind of straddling a line between a kind of decent ideology and bad behavior
1: yeah um i don't know and i think that um i think that i tried to be as even handed and um open minded as possible and sort of treat both sides with the respect um that and and the assumption that they're acting in good faith even when they do bad things um and that's sort of the the crux of the difficulty of you know talking about gentrification, talking about displacement, um, you know I spent fifteen years as a community organizer in New York City working on issues of homelessness and housing policy uh, and trying to get the city to prioritize you know preserving low income housing as well as creating low income housing um, and you know it's just such a difficult conversation for people to have um, and so I felt like. I had insights in, you know, I I had, I think that it's easy, even though not a lot of people do empathize with the displaced. Um, I think in a certain sense, just on a, like on the, on a storytelling level, it's easy to empathize with people who have lost their homes, people who have been thrown out um, of the communities that they helped build. Um, I think that, the, that, that our hearts go out to that person on a storytelling level. Um, even if we are, you know, the ones throwing them out of their homes or voting for the politicians who allow that to continue. Um, and I think that it took me a lot longer to empathize with and understand the the people on the other side of that equation. And so, for example, I sat in on like, probably had hundreds of meetings with politicians over the course of 15 years, where I went with homeless folks to say like, this is the policy, this, this is the, the housing plan that we came up with of like, the way the cost effective, you know, common sense ways to preserve and create low-income housing um, and hearing them say no to what was a very, to our mind, rational and fair uh, thing. That took me a lot longer. Um, It it, it was a lot harder for me to see uh, and understand that perspective. And so, um, you know, this story is in in a large part me trying to, to, like, carry on this conversation um, that I've been having in my head for, for a really long time and, and have it in the world. Um, so, so yeah, I, I don't, I don't, I, th- I think that there's, there's, you know, we're, we're all big, hot messes on both sides of the, of the table. And if we can't figure out how to fix our mess together, it will get messier.
0: I won't give any spoilers, but the, the novel does, you know, in conclusion, offer one potential route out of that that mess which is which is nice but but going back to what i said earlier in the conversation about that you just confirmed actually um so th- the horror is is the realization that like we're complicit in this displacement because you know i i own a house with my wife you know i'm, I'm not particularly at risk you know during covid when everything when well, the sky is falling for a lot of people it's not really touching me right yet you know touch wood that it won't um but you realise that you are complicit in this machine. And the, the, the hipsters who arrive, you know, on the trains to Hudson or who arrive to my little village every Saturday and, and, and take over it, um, in the, the narrative of the world, you know, generally they get to be the good guys because they're anti-Trump and they are, you know, anti-all the things um, that that Trump and Trump, his ilk represent; that they're, they're the good guys, but but in in your book, they're forced to confront the fact that they they may not be. And it, it would have been really easy for you, I think, to just take some people like Jark, the developer who's trying to make this, he's trying to turn the town around. It would have been really easy to just take them and just make them on a personal level really odious people, B- but you don't. It, it's more it kind of it hangs in the air the that the harm they're doing rather than them you know committing personal atrocities it, it It's quite a subtle take thank you uh, uh
1: yeah i mean I, I i that's what to me makes for good storytelling is you know that the characters, even the monsters, feel real and 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 are treated with respect, so that you know um I think that that you know one of my greatest um, writer heroes is James Baldwin, um, and I think that he had this phenomenal knack that that I've always strived to to uh, capture a faint echo of 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 depicting how we are all caught up in in really horrific systems, um, legacies of racism, legacies of class struggle um, that that we you know legacies of gender oppression legacies of homophobia that you know it would be great if the, the 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 problem like the villain that we had to overcome was like a factory boss that we had to organize against but um it is harder if the villain is the part of ourselves that hates who we are on some level so that in julie in, in giovanni's room one of my favorite novels. No, it's such a good book. (laughs) Yeah. The obstacle to, to love and happiness is in the narrator's head. I mean, he cannot choose happiness. He has internalized so much hate and, and, and gender and and misogyny and gender bias and male, you know, toxic masculinity um, that he is the one who destroys what he loves. And so um, yeah, that's, that's sort of what moves me as a, as a reader and, and what I want to capture is like, you know, it would be easy if the, the, the villain is Trump. Um, and as a side note, I've just found that I can say his name again. I spent four years not like going through elaborate structure sentence restructurings in my head to prov- avoid saying his name. And now I uh, see, I can see him as a, um, a joke once again. Um, and so Side note, um, but but yes, uh, it would be great if 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 the the person in in the White House was the villain, and he is a villain, um, but he's not the only villain, and and the problems are much deeper. I, I think the inverse of that was, um, you know, those same people for years before that were patting themselves on the back for voting for Obama um, and not um, and and thinking that that meant that they weren't racist, um, and maybe they weren't racist, but that didn't mean they weren't behaving in um, or 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 wielding you know white privilege or otherwise um, you know um, engaging in toxic behavior that was shaped by by racism
0: oh completely I've been saying for years that um... The Obama phenomenon allowed people to say on a a, a political scale, rather than saying, you know, the old adage of, I can't be racist, I've got a black friend. It was just replaced with, I can't be racist, I've got a black president. (laughs) Exactly. Changing tack and tally, because, you know, we're getting quite political, and I want to luxuriate in the idea (laughs) that for a while, we don't have to think about the White House. We may be able to just kind of Willfully go about our business, not, not worrying about what the president is doing for a few days at a time. That, that'll <laughs> be nice. Um, Absolutely. so to, ch- yeah, to change tack, I want to ask one thing that struck me about, um, The Blade Between is it's a very sexually driven novel. And the reason I mention that is because I feel like these days mainstream horror fiction has been kind of excavated of its sexuality you know the days of kind of Clive Barker seem behind us or even going back to Stephen King who would who would happily confront you know um quite extreme sexualities in his in his fiction it feels like that's gone away a little bit and everything's been been toned down um which i'm not sure is a good thing why did you choose to make sex such a big part of the novel
1: I mean, I think that sex is a big part of all my fiction, um, uh, or at least a lot of it. I think that, um, I want to tell stories about the queer experience and that often those, um, there are, there are facets of that experience that are unique and different and beautiful, even if they might be horrifying to, um, you know, people outside our community. So, um, I think that, you know, treating sex frankly um is really important from a, a, a queer perspective. And I think that honestly, a lot of the reason why um uh a lot of I think there's there was a there was a bad legacy for many years, and not just in horror, in a lot of like literary fiction and in, in a lot of genres, of like because the canon Um, is shaped by white male writers and white male critics deciding who is and isn't, um, uh, you know, worthy of of publication and and critical acclaim. I think because we had so many years of the the straight white dudes, you know, the Henry Millers, the Norman Mailers, not that I have any grudge against those writers, but just that sexuality had been so poisoned by toxic masculinity um, that it's very hard for, it's very hard, I think, to explore um um conventional um sexuality in a way that doesn't echo you know oppression of one form or another um and i think that um because sex is such a formative part of uh queer identity um you know we the lgbtq folks um have something important to say and and to talk about and and so yeah I, I don't know that I have a good answer, just that I think it's important i think that um, you know that we um the the history of horror is actually i i've just been sort of de- diving into it um, and 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 I'm always surprised by how queer the history of horror is um and and how you know going back to something like Frankenstein, which I think is a profoundly queer novel and certainly the circumstances of its creation um, uh, are, are, are rooted in, you know, queer desire. Um, I think that, that, um, we have a lot to say and a lot to offer and, and have, have done. Um, so I, you know, I, I, um, I want to talk about the things that make people feel and, and, and sex is, is a a big part of that.
0: Well, that leads to another question quite nicely, actually, because, a few episodes ago, I spoke to Emily Danforth about her new novel, um, Plain Bad Heroines, which, if you haven't read it yet, by the way, is is great. It's just, it's just so much fun. Awesome. And I asked Emily about the state, in her opinion, of queer horror. And the reason I asked her is because, sorry, this is getting convoluted. I asked her that because of a conversation I had with Silvia Moreno-Garcia about Mexican Gothic, in which she made the point that as a Mexican horror author, she felt in many ways like she had become the go-to Mexican horror author. And she almost became a blockage for other Mexican horror authors, because in the words of Highlander, there can be only one, you know? (laughs) Um, So I asked Emily... As a, as a, a, a lesbian author, whether she felt the same pressure. Um, and I couldn't quite work out whether she, whether she did or not. Um, she gave quite a, quite a nuanced answer, but I certainly feel from, from outside the community, like, like, um, as much as we pride ourselves on, on genre becoming more diversified, I'm struggling to find these authors who represent these marginalized, identities because it does feel like we are now picking um flagship authors to stand for an identity so i'm going to throw that to you and also ask you if you have any recommendations for other people working in queer horror that i could read or that our listeners could could look up
1: yeah um i so first of all this is a great question because it um prompted me to um remember something that hopefully will deepen my stammery answer to the previous question um because uh to deviate slightly from the question at hand um another reason why it's important for me to talk about sex is because um you know similar to the idea that there can be only one writer of a diff of a given community in a given genre there's this idea that that one or two or whoever is writing you know the who is who has found themselves the spokesperson for this community in this genre is um you know the idea that they have to speak for everyone and that therefore they can't tell you know they have to represent the you know every you know our community as perfect and yeah. heroic and worthy of respect right that we have to prove our humanity to um the the um to the public um to to a community that might not see our humanity um you know I think that um we, I'm, I, I hate those narratives. I don't want to prove my humanity. Um, you know, anyone who doesn't get the humanity of queer folks is, is not my audience. Um, uh, and I don't know that I would be successful in, in, in convincing them. Um, so I, um, I want to tell this, the, the ugly stories, the, the stories about people who are hot messes and who are sex addicts and drug addicts and, you know, have eating disorders, um, and deep, profound troubled body image issues. Um, so that is, um, you know, my sort of like response to the, there can be only one, um, is that there are so many different facets of the queer experience as they are of, of every community. Um, uh, and that I want to, want to, want to shatter that idea of like, you have to be perfect. Even, even, you know, this, this becomes even more of an issue when you talk about young adult, um novels and the idea that you, since you're writing for young people it's extra important for you to represent a good like make us look good because you're writing for young people including young queer people who might not have exposure to other queer stories and therefore this you're, this is your first one so so yeah i think that i want to you know when i wrote the art of starving um you know there's there's a lot of sex in it there's a lot of cursing there's the, the, i'm not i'm not i can't I can't and won't write the sort of cleaned up um, version of these of these things. Um, In terms of who's doing it really well, um, one of my favorite writers of horror is Craig Lawrence Gidney. um, And he has a novel that came out last year called A Spectral Hue um, that I really loved. I love the work of Alyssa Wong. Um, You know, she writes amazing deeply horrifying fiction. Um, And I think that, you know, writers like her and Isabel Yap, um, there's, there's like a lot of, Folks who are sort of in or adjacent to horror. I mean, one of the things that I find as a horror writer, and I should preface this by saying that I'm actually really bad at genre. Um, I tend to um, be confused about what something is, and even something I wrote, I might think of it as one genre, um, but it's it's other people might think of it as another. Um, often, when I'm playing with horror, it's I love the toolkit of horror. Like I might not be trying to scare you. Like I wrote this a short story called things with beards um which is sort of like a fanfic sequel to the thing um the 1982 film um and i wasn't necessarily trying to scare people i was trying to use the tools of horror to tell the kind of story that i wanted to tell um uh so so yeah um i think that there's a lot of great writers nino nino cipri is another writer who i adore who's who's sort of you know Angle it like using the, the paint set of horror to paint uh, a picture that is, is I think different from what we conventionally think of as horror.
0: I will, I will add all those names to the show notes. I always do this for any books mentioned, but I will also look into some of those authors because there's names I don't
1: recognize there. Can I ask what's next for you? Is anything in the pipeline coming up? Uh, right now I'm working on a graphic novel pitch, um, which I'm really excited about because I love graphic novels. Um, and I, uh, am um excited to work on on something like that i don't know if it will succeed um but but that's 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 one of my projects i'm writing a lot of short stories i'm you know the blade between will be my fourth novel published in four years which is wonderful and amazing um and i'm suspecting that i can't sustain that pace indefinitely Um, so i'm trying to be more intentional with what my next novel project is and really take a step back um and um go into it really intentionally um and really think deeply about what i what i'm what i want to write about next so i don't really know what that will be um whether it'll be science fiction fantasy horror something else entirely i'm putting the finishing touches on a novella about Jewish boxers and Jewish gangsters in the 1920s in New York City with magic, because um, that's a subject that I'm obsessed with. Um, and so that, that, is, that is a longer project that I'm finishing out, um, but what, what, where that will see the light of day, if at all, is, is uh, TBD. Excellent. Excellent. We look forward to uh, reading that.
0: So to finish off, I've got um, the four questions I ask each of my guests. If I can throw these at you and ask for your kind of first impulsive reaction, that'd be great. Sure. Yep. Okay, here we go. I rapid fire these. Um, Number one, what was your gateway to horror? My mom was obsessed with horror movies. um, I thought you were going to say your mom then. I thought thought you were going to leave
1: it there and just say my mom. Um, I'm glad you carried on. (laughs) <laughs> yes, I mean, you know, I, she'd let me see a lot of horror movies I really shouldn't have seen at a lot of uh, uh, tender young ages. And so while my quality of sleep may not have been great over my life, uh, my quality of writing has improved because of it. So I owe her that, among many other things.
0: Well done, Mum. Number two, if you could recommend one book to our listeners not written by yourself, what would it be and why? Poppy
1: Z. Bright's Drawing Blood. Um, which I only discovered Poppy Z. Bright relatively recently. And I just think it's some of the, it's brilliant writing, brilliant horror storytelling, and some of the best representations of, of gay intimacy that I've ever seen.
0: Yeah. I read Lost Souls years ago and loved it. And then is, is Drawing Blood the short story collection? No, no, it's a novel. Oh, I'm getting mixed up because there's a short story collection that has one of the most awful, ugliest stories set in a mortuary that I've ever read. Um, But cool. Drawing Blood. If you had one piece of advice for a
1: fledgling author, what would it be? Read a lot, read what's, you know, see what's out there, figure out what scares you. Um, and, and don't be afraid to scare the shit out of yourself.
0: Nice. Nice. Well, that leads beautifully into the last question, um, which is what truly scares you?
1: Everything. I'm, I'm afraid of everything. Um, uh, in the world that I can acknowledge as reality, I am scared of things like homelessness and disease and car accidents and um, fascist takeovers and concentration camps. Um, and in the world that I can that people tell me is not reality, um, I am scared of werewolves um, and vampires and, and shapeshifting aliens, um, and the list goes on and on. Fertile ground for the future stories then.
0: <laughs> yes, exactly. Right. Well, on that all encompassing note, we'll we'll leave it there. Um so all I can say is Sam J. Miller, thank you for the blade between and thank you for talking scared. So how many of you felt like that growing up? Like your hometown was a place to escape from. I did. I always thought the idea of living where I grew up was akin to failure, like it was my mission to get as far away as possible. I lived all over. I went to Scotland. I went to Switzerland. I went to Canada for a bit. And now I'm back where I started, less than a 30-minute drive from the house I grew up in. But I love it here now, and and woe betide anyone else who wants to criticise the place. That's my job. The Blade Between does a fantastic job of evoking that simultaneous love and and hate for a place. The Hudson that Sam writes about feels like a real town. As I said, it has that fully fleshed out Stephen King vibe, but the story takes all kinds of risks and keeps you genuinely wrong footed as to what's going to happen or or even what you want to happen. It's out now and I, I recommend it as one of the more thought provoking novels of 2020. Now, Sam and I discussed a lot of books in this episode, and I can't do justice to all of them in this brief summary, but I have put a list in the show notes. If you missed a title or you missed an author, check it out there. Uh, we, we made numerous references to Sam's first novel, The Art of Starving, which is a, a semi-autobiographical story about a young gay man with an eating disorder that, that Sam draws from his own experiences. I haven't read it yet, but but in in this book, uh, and in his previous novel, Blackfish City, Sam has shown that he's got a really kind of unique, compelling voice. So I'll be sure to check that out. Um, we talked about Drawing Blood by Poppy Z. Bright. For anyone who doesn't know Poppy Z. Bright, uh, she had one of the most groundbreaking and shocking voices in 90s cult horror. Her novel Lost Souls changed the game for vampire fiction. Um I haven't read Drawing Blood, but I'm going to check it out because, as I say, game-changing stuff back in the day. We mentioned Paul Tremblay's The Cabin at the End of the World. Now you'll have heard of this one. It was massive two years ago. Um, it's it's a book that marries the kind of the paranoid home invasion of a film like Funny Games with a Lovecraftian cosmic horror, and it contains possibly the most gut-punching ending to a novel since Stephen King wrote Pet Cemetery. This one doesn't just pull the rug from beneath your feet. It it pulls the rug out and then kicks you down the stairs. You've got to read it. The Cabinet End of the World by Paul Tremblay. When I asked him to suggest some lgbt writers to look out for um sam threw a lot of names at me that i i'm not familiar with and you may not be either so to briefly recap I, I should say i haven't read these novels i'm going to check them out but here's a kind of frame of reference for that so craig lawrence gibney wrote a book last year called a spectral hue um which by the Sounds of Things is a, a book about art and the pursuit of a particular haunting colour that can only be found in the local swamp, which obviously has strong vibes of Lovecraft's colour out of space. It sounds quite magical, uh, quite slipstream, so yeah, going to look it up. Um, Isabel Yap is a an author who's getting a lot of buzz right now. She's got a new collection out next year early next year, called Never Have I Ever, um, which has been compared to people like Kelly Link and Neil Gaiman, so definitely want to check out. Uh, and lastly, this one's really intrigued me, Nino Cipri, um has written a book called Homesick in 2019, which was really well reviewed, but in this year brought out a novel called Finna, that's F-I-N-N-A, which is set in a Scandinavian Furniture Store, parentheses, but not that one, uh, which contains a portal to multiverses uh, in which the characters have to search for their lost grandmother. And um, the synopsis promises carnivorous furniture. So what's not to love? That's thinner by Nino Cipri. Last reference to other authors. Um, in passing, Sam mentioned Nathan Ballingrud. Now, Nathan wrote North American Late Monsters, which is a kind of seminal piece of modern weird horror short fiction. Um, I read it, and it is a jaw-dropping piece of work. He followed it up with Wounds, another short collection. Um, what the central story, which was adapted for Netflix. Um, basically, Nathan, if by any chance you're listening, or anyone who knows you is, hi. Please come on the show when you. Release your new novel or new short story collection. I'd love to talk to you. If anyone else would like to get in touch with the show, listeners or authors, you know it's the usual methods. You can find me on Twitter at TalkScaredPod, on Instagram at TalkingScaredPod, or email me directly at talkingscaredpod at gmail Every week, I implore you to leave a review if you can. It really, really, really helps drive listenership and get me up the visibility chain um, on the various platforms. And the more listeners I get, the longer I can run this show. So if you like what I'm doing, you know, please give a review. We've collected new listeners in droves recently. And I want to say a massive thank you to everyone who's listened or shared or mentioned the show. That said, if you find Talking Scared, because I interviewed your favourite author then why not hit subscribe and listen to some other episodes? There's a whole world of horror out there to hear about, and you may find a book that you wouldn't have discovered otherwise. You know, that's the dream. But that's enough self-promotion for this week, at least anyway. Until next week, what have we learned? Buy local, choose an independent cafe over Starbucks, and be nice to your local butcher. (laughs) Read books, and remember, it's good to be scared.